Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back historian and professor Glenn Sunshine, who specializes in the Reformation era and has authored several books on Christianity and culture. He's here here to talk about his latest book, 32 Christians Who Changed Their World, which highlights the lives of lesser-known individuals who made a significant impact for the kingdom of God. From Vikings to Queens to Founding Fathers, Glenn shares with us why he chose to focus on these individuals and what we can learn from their stories. This conversation was a blast, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it too. Glenn Sunshine is a former professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and a senior faculty member of the Colson Fellows. As an award-winning author, Glenn has published several books, articles, and book chapters on history, theology, and culture. His book, Why You Think the Way You Do, received the 2006 Acton Institute Book Grant. Glenn has also taught courses on four continents. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also click on the link in the description below to go to my website and sign up for email updates so that anytime we release a new episode, you will get that sent directly into your inbox. Lastly, if you've been helped by this episode or any of our other episodes here on Filter, let me encourage you to leave us a rating and review or to share this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Also, write a review on Apple Podcast. Whenever you take these simple steps, it'll only take a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Glenn Sunshine. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. I was telling you before that I've been wanting to have you back, and I've had you on my list. I've been trying to figure out, I need to get Glenn back, and just thinking uh, what, what will be our topic, and then I saw you had a new book coming out, and so so I said, perfect, let's do it. So I appreciate you making the time to come back on, uh, especially in the midst of visiting family and celebrating a new grandchild. Congratulations on all that. Um, yeah, Yeah, it's great to have you on. So your new book that you have coming out, uh, we're recording this at the end of March, and it's releasing on April 4th, so we're just a few days away now, is called 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. It's an exciting book, and uh, I haven't got my copy yet, but I'm really looking forward to reading it. Let's start by just telling us, why did you write this book? Well, the the story goes back to work I was doing with Chuck Colson in what was then called the Centurions Program, uh, now known as the Colson Fellows. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd been teaching in the program since it started in 2004, and one year they asked me, you know, they, they had this habit of giving me titles without any indication of what they wanted me to do. <laughs> so I got the title, uh, Christians Who Changed Their World, and it was supposed to be just before the graduation. And that's a problem. I mean, because you don't want to give them a ton of new material or whatever. You want to do something kind of light and fun and all of that before graduation, but with some substance to it. 
And at the same time, I also knew Chuck. He was thinking William Wilberforce, probably at the top of the list. Maybe mm -hmm. Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, you know, people like that. And I looked at it and I thought, nah, too easy. So I decided to uh, pick a bunch of people that nobody had ever heard of. None of them, initially at least, none of them in the clergy, or if they were in the clergy, they were doing things that we don't normally associate with the clergy. Mm -hmm. And so I just did, did a, a run of these people. And Chuck loved it. Um, he told T.M. Moore, who was then running the program, he said, we need to have Glenn give this at every, you know, every residency, which is kind of ridiculous because there were three residencies a year. You don't really. But anyway, um, I ended up doing it again the next year. And at that point, I picked different people. Mm -hmm. And from there, it turned into a series of articles at the Colson Center, um, which most of which have disappeared, but um, I have, uh, I, I kept my copies, of course, and I tried to hunt down a publisher, but nobody was interested in a book about people nobody had ever heard of um, until Canon Press came along, and Canon Press got it. Canon Press understood the point of picking people that people hadn't heard of. Mm -hmm. um, when you read Hebrews 11, the first part of Hebrews 11 deals with people who are sort of household names, you know, Noah, Moses, Abraham, you know, people like that. But at the end, it talks about people who are left unnamed. We don't know who they are, but it describes what they did because of their faith. And these anonymous, no-name people at the end of Hebrews 11 are just as much a part of the catalog of the heroes of the faith as Abraham and Moses and Noah and all of the others that, that are named. I wanted to give voice to those people who hadn't really been heard of, many of whom are really very, very important. Mm -hmm. But we don't either, we, either we don't hear about them or we don't recognize the role of the Christian faith in what they were doing or whatever. Yeah, so I, I've mentioned this on the podcast a bunch of times, but I love history. I'm a history nerd. It is usually what I read for fun. You know, my pleasure reading isn't, uh, isn't like novels or the latest fantasy literature, but I like to read biographies and histories. And so whenever I looked over the table of contents to see who was in this book, I was telling you before, I saw a lot of names that I had never heard of before. Many that I don't even want to try to pronounce. Uh, I only saw a couple that I knew and even the ones that I knew I was surprised to see included on this list um, because I had no idea that they had made, um, you know, significant contributions to their world out of a Christian conviction. And so that really excited me. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, that's the key point of the book. Um, I wanted to draw people from all different walks of life so that I could illustrate the way a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, can shape what you do in pretty much any walk of life and thus mm. have a significant impact on the world around you. That's, that was another goal of, of the people I picked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you don't just have to be the, uh, a politician in parliament or a missionary to have a great impact for the kingdom of God, but just being someone who's willing to be used by God wherever you are. Right. Yeah.
So one of the first names that interested me, because I, I think that I had heard this name before, um, but uh, but still, I was, I was surprised to see it on there and wanting to know more, was this guy named St. Columbanus. Columbanus? Columbanus. Uh, Columbanus. Okay. And I was interested because this is, um, he was Irish. Is that correct? That's correct. And he was a missionary to Europe, which my understanding has always been. So I guess this is what you'll get into is that Christianity w- was in Europe, moved up into the British Isles, then to Ireland through St. Patrick. Um, so I was interested to hear about this Irishman who kind of then brought the path back down to Europe. So tell us about uh, St. Columbanus. Oh, well, let, let's start off with Europe. Um, at, when the Roman Empire uh, collapsed in Western Europe, all kinds of things went on a downward spiral. Um, you have, it seems, decreased population, you have decreased urbanization, you have a collapse of education, and so on. And although the Frankish kingdom was nominally Catholic, Christian at the time, eh, it was in a really, really bad state. The church was was uh, was corrupt. Um, the faith was really not a living, active thing in the culture. But while all of that is happening on continental Europe, the faith is flourishing in Ireland. Ireland becomes known as the island of saints and scholars during this period. Hmm. Uh, now, to understand why, let's look at Ireland before Patrick. Irish pagan religion, you know, the, the, the priests in Irish pagan religion, known as Druids, were really the repositories of virtually all cultural knowledge. It took decades of training to become a Druid. You needed to know history, you needed to know religion, you needed to know ritual, music, poetry, law, um, magic, you know, all of these kinds of things. You had to know everything that the culture um, involved because you were the one who directed Mm. and preserved the culture. And it was all done orally, which Mm. is another interesting thing. When Patrick came, and actually many of the Druids converted to Christianity, uh, but quite naturally in Ireland, the idea was, okay, now that we're Christians, we need to know everything there is to know about Christian culture. Because that was their understanding of what a holy man was. A holy man was someone who was the repository of all cultural knowledge. So they went at study with uh, with abandon. I mean, and, and this was really difficult because they didn't speak Latin, they didn't speak Greek, they didn't speak Hebrew, and they didn't really write much of anything. So they had to learn to read. They had to learn to read in a foreign language. And further, in all of these mm-hmm. languages... Words were written as an unbroken string of letters, no capitalization, no punctuation, no word spaces. Now, reading English that way is not a problem. We can do it because we know the language, we're fluent in it. Try doing it in a foreign language that you're starting to learn. So the Irish will introduce things like word breaks, punctuation, stuff like that to make reading easier. And in so doing, they virtually invent modern reading and turn reading from a secondary means of, of learning oral first, then reading to remind you, to a primary means of learning. And basically, they they master Greek, Hebrew, Latin. They learn all about um, you know the Roman and Greek classics along with uh, the Bible, along with um, the early Christian writers, especially the Desert Fathers from Egypt and so on. 
so they become well, the saints and scholars. Now, that's your context where Columbanus comes along. Uh, Columbanus was born actually in the year St. Benedict died. Um, and uh, he apparently was a really good-looking guy as, as, as a youth. Um, and he had uh, a number of women who were sort of chasing him. And he ended up going to an old wise woman in his village and said, look, you know, all these women want me to marry them, but I really think I want to go to the monastery. And the old woman said to him, remember Samson, David, Solomon? Women are trouble. Go to the monastery. So he said, okay, I'll go to the monastery. He went home, told his mother. His mother went into hysterics, laid down across the floor, the, the door of the house to keep him from leaving. He stepped over her and went and joined the monastery. Now, whether that's a good thing or not, I'll leave to your judgment. But in the monastery, he excelled as a scholar. And as a matter of fact, he became the head of the school at the monastery in Bangor, Maine. And then around age 40, he felt that God was calling him to become what the Irish called a peregrinus. A peregrinus is a pilgrim. It's Latin for pilgrim. But the Irish had a rather peculiar notion of what pilgrimage was. Uh, it was typically unplanned wanderings, going wherever God sent you on mission with the sense that you would never return home. It was a permanent exile from your home to go on mission for God. Hmm. The head of the monastery didn't want Columbanus to go. So a few years later, Columbanus appealed to him again, and this time he agreed. So Columbanus set out with 12 companions um, from Ireland, landed in Karnak in Brittany, and then began to preach across France, Gaul in that day, modern France. And the people there had never seen anything like these guys. They were serious, they were dedicated, they lived extremely strict lifestyles, and they were 100% sold out for God. And this attracted people. Um, they caused a stir everywhere they went. Finally, they made their way across to the, the underkingdom of Burgundy, where the king there, a guy named Gontram, uh, gave to Columbanus an abandoned Roman fortress called Anagre to start a monastery. Mm -hmm. um, because Irish Christianity was built around monasteries. He attracted people from all walks of life, so much so that he established a second monastery nearby at a place called Luxoy. Now, Columbanus was following Irish traditions, Irish practice, and very, very, like I said, serious, austere, strict form of Christianity in these monasteries, while also ministering to the surrounding countryside. The local bishops didn't like this, because frankly, he was making them look bad. And on the continent, unlike in Ireland, in the continent, the monasteries were under the authority of bishops. So they called Columbanus to a synod, a meeting, basically to explain to him how he needed to do what he was doing. Columbanus, in Ireland, the monasteries are above the, the bishops. Columbanus said, I'm sorry, I have too much work to do advancing God's kingdom. Maybe you guys should try that. And, and he refused to come to the, the Senate. He actually mm -hmm. sent a letter to the Pope, which was very polite, but basically said, look, these bishops you've got are a bunch of bozos. You really need, they're your responsibility. You need to ride herd over these guys and get them to do their job. 
it was much more polite than that, but that's what it amounted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is causing quite a bit of controversy. Um, from there, he should really have paid attention to John the Baptist. He started criticizing the sexual behavior of the royal family. Now, the queen mother at this time was a woman named Brunhilda. And if you have any associations with Brunhilda, she is the reason you do. Um, she was a she was a corrupt, nasty, violent person who did not take criticism of her family well. On the other hand, she didn't feel like she could just simply off these guys. She was known, for example, for torturing bishops who crossed her to death. Um, for whatever reason, she decided she wow. couldn't just simply kill Columbanus. So she told, she said, okay, the monasteries can stay open, but everybody from Ireland has to go back to Ireland. They can't stay here. So they stuck him on board a ship, sent him up the Rhine. Um, there was um, a shipwreck, though. There was a storm came up. The ship ran aground. The ship captain said, look, you guys are a bunch of Jonas. Get off my boat. So they got off the boat and mm-hmm. they began preaching again. This time they made their way south along the Rhine, eventually um, ending up in a lake near a lake in Switzerland where there was an old Roman church that had actually been converted to a pagan shrine, complete with idol. Hmm. Um, Columbanus got there, and it turns out that one of his guys actually spoke the local language. Uh, this is wow. the Irish. They learn this stuff. And so what they yeah. did is they they called all the people together. They hauled the idol out and threw it in the lake. And Columbanus's companion preached to them, and they returned to Christianity. Um, they were there oh. for a while, and then Columbanus again got into trouble with the local uh, authorities. Uh, his companion, a guy by the name of Gaul, really believed that God wanted him to stay there to to build the church. And so he left Columbanus. Columbanus actually traveled south of the Alps um, into Lombardy. Uh, Gaul establishes a monastery there. It Eventually, another monastery will be established, and the entire canton is named after him, Sankt Gallen. So this canton in Switzerland is named hmm. after Columbanus's companions. Columbanus then uh, goes to Lombardy, an area that was under the Arians, um, people who are nominally Christian but didn't accept the deity of Christ. But the king there had a wife by the name of Theodolinda who was an Orthodox Christian. And she convinced the hmm. king to allow Columbanus to start a monastery to bring Orthodox Christianity into the region. So he started a monastery at, at Bobbio, and then um, a year later he died and is buried there. Now, the reason why all of this is important goes back to what I said about Irish education. When I was in college, or grad school actually, uh, I studied medieval paleography, which is the uh, art of reading ancient handwritings, in this case medieval Latin. And the thing about this is um, handwritings get, are very distinctive. So that while I took the course, I couldn't do it now, but while I was in the course, uh, I was expected to be able to identify what monastery scribes were trained in and to date manuscripts to within 50 years, just on the basis of the handwriting. Wow. Hmm. All of the handwritings that we studied in from the eh, 8th century, let's say, 7th to 8th century, every one of them 
came from a scribe that was trained at Luxoy, Corby, which was the daughter monastery of Luxoy, or Bobbio. Every one of them. These guys re, re brought not only the gospel, not only a more serious vision of what it means to be to follow Christ, but they brought education with them. We have yeah. all, all of the stuff we learned from this period pretty much came from people who were trained either in monasteries that Columbanus started or monasteries that those monasteries started. If you're familiar with the name of the Rose, the library in the name of the Rose was based on the library at Bobbio, the last monastery Columbanus founded. So this is an example of the kind of impact that the Irish are going to have in Europe, both in terms of revitalizing Christianity and starting to, well, kickstart education again on the continent after it had, been, after it had largely collapsed. Wow. Wow, what a story. Yeah, and I've I've heard before, you know, I have the book by uh Thomas Cahill. Right. Uh, How the Irish saved civilization. And I'm ashamed to say I still haven't read it. It's on my shelf. I I, I want to. And um Let in this story uh de definitely shows or defends the title of that book. Yeah, um Cahill is right about far more than he's wrong about. He has a couple of axes to grind that I don't agree with. But overall, that, that's a good book, and it really does um, show the kind of impact that the Irish will have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, I, I, I love hearing this story about this, uh, this Columbanus, Columbanus. I can't get that right. Which one is it? How do you pronounce usually, his name? In English, it's usually pronounced Columbanus. Columbanus, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and once again, you know, it's it's a story of someone. This is the early Middle Ages, yeah. right? The historians, yeah, and um, and you know, I think so many of us, we whenever we think of Christian history, we think of the New Testament period, the very early church, maybe Augustine, and then basically nothing until the Reformation. And so, it's really incredible to hear about the this Christian activity and missionary activity that was happening. Uh, in the, the richness of it, um, in, in that in-between period and that right. there were, there were things happening in that time. God was moving in that time. And, uh, but we just, we haven't been educated in it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one of the benefits of reading this book from you being a, a scholar during this period. There's a lot of, there's a lot more names in, in the book from, uh, the, uh, ancient history and middle ages. Uh, there's another one in there that is really interesting to see because you have a Viking on the list. Yeah, and actually, actually two. Oh, I only noticed one. Yeah, um, uh, there, there, there's a woman uh, who is actually an acquaintance of the one you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah. So I was really interested to see, and I would be upset if we didn't get a chance to talk about Leif Erikson and. Yep his part in this book, because I remember learning about Leif Erikson, uh, from elementary school history and, uh, but never would have guessed, I mean, by virtue of him being a Viking and what we know, or at least I guess, assume about what Vikings were like, uh, that he would be in a book about Christians who changed their world. So tell us about the story of Leif Erikson. Yeah. Well, um, let's start with his father, Eric, the red, um, Eric, the red established a colony in Greenland. 
And the reason why he established the colony in Greenland is he had murdered someone in Iceland and was exiled. The reason he was exiled, uh, uh, the reason why he was in Iceland in the first place is he'd murdered someone in Norway and was exiled. Yeah. So um, Eric the Red, uh, it was so-called because of his red hair and red beard, but you could also say he was pretty red-handed too. Um, so Leif was his son. And uh, Leif uh, traveled to Norway, returned to Norway, and uh, there uh, got into the court of the king of Norway, a guy named Olaf I. Now, Olaf was, uh, had actually converted to Christianity. Um, but we need to understand Olaf's... Um, uh, way of thinking about Christianity owed far more to his Viking past than it did to the actual gospel. Um, he decided that he wanted his people to convert, and um, people who refused, um, he would sometimes torture or kill. Um, when Iceland refused to uh, adopt Christianity, he blockaded it um, until they agreed to become Christian. I mean, the guy was, you know, uh, he, he was um, an aggressive uh, proselytizer, I think you could say. Yeah. <laughs> um, Leif arrived there, and Leif, without being coerced, Leif accepted Christianity. And he spent some time at the court there. Uh, and then Olaf sent him back to Greenland to convert the colony there to Christianity. So... Leif set sail to go back to his father's colony to establish the church there. So he was on a missionary journey. Now, you need to understand, Viking longships had square sails, uh, which meant they had very limited ability to tack into the wind. They could a little bit, but not much. Now, here's the problem. When you're crossing the Atlantic, or when you're in the North Atlantic, the prevailing wind is from the west. So how do you sail east with square sails when the prevailing wind is from the west? The answer is storms. Storms tend to go cyclonic. That is to say, they, they in the northern hemisphere, the winds rotate counterclockwise. You know, hurricanes, things like that. So the way the Vikings got across the North Atlantic is they rode the north end of the storms, which hmm. gave you eastward blowing winds, which allowed them to get across the North Atlantic. Now, as you can imagine, this isn't a terribly precise way of navigating. And it's not entirely clear exactly what happened, but one way or another, Leif went past Greenland, either because of just simply being blown a bit or off course, uh, or Equally possible, he may have uh, run into some people who had been um, who had been shipwrecked, um, who told him about the land further to the west of Greenland. One way or another, he got to Greenland. Or he got to what he called Vinland because there were a lot of, of uh, grapevines there. Um, it literally means wine land. Um, <laughs> But um, and established a colony there. Uh, the colony lasted for a certain period of time, uh, but eventually it was abandoned because of, um, well, opposition from the locals, who the Vikings called Skrælings. 
Skraling is uh, Norse for barbarians. Uh, you got to wonder what makes a Viking call someone a barbarian, but there yeah. you have. <laughs> um, and he ended up withdrawing, you know, the colony closed. Um, he ended up withdrawing to Greenland, where he set about doing the work that Olaf sent him to do, converting the, the island. Um, his mother converted to Christianity readily. Um, Eric didn't want to have anything to do with it, but he was eventually convinced to become a Christian by his wife because she refused to sleep with him until he became a Christian. So with that, the colony in Greenland becomes officially Christian. And to this mm -hmm. day, it is actually, it, it's actually Christian, um, Christian territory of, De of Denmark. Um, it's worth noting that the very last record we have of the Viking colony in Greenland was a wedding that took place in a Christian church. Hmm. Wow. And so how much do we know about uh, Viking Christianity? You know, I mean, I'm assuming there has to be some differences between their beliefs and practices and ours. You know, how, how orthodox was their belief and practice? I think it generally ends up being being fairly orthodox by the standards of the day. You have to realize that the way we approach Christianity is dictated by historical and cultural circumstances that they didn't face. Hmm. The Reformation shapes the way Protestants approach Christianity in some pretty profound ways. And while they are good, they are not the only way to do Christianity. You know, and yeah. in the period that we're looking at now, it's a very different world. They don't have the same historical context, mm -hmm. but they also don't have the same cultural context. And culture makes an enormous difference in shaping the way Christian faith is expressed as well. Yeah. Um, as a good example of this, consider the other Viking. Um, technically not a Viking, but... Uh, Technically, the word Viking is a verb. You go Viking. It means raiding or something along those lines. Mm. So calling them Vikings is is sort of popular terminology that we use for all Norse people. But technically, your Vikings are just the subset of the warriors who are going out raiding and things like that. But in any event, um, one of uh, the people that was at the colony that Leif Erikson found, founded was a woman by the name of uh, Gudrid, um, Thorbjörn's daughter. Um, is her technical name? It's a patronymic. Her father's name was Thorbjörn, so she's mm -hmm. Thorbjörn's daughter. Um, she's known in Iceland as Gudrid the Far Traveler. Um, Gudrid was born in Iceland. Um, had several husbands, including Leif Erikson's brother, all of whom died in various circumstances. But she accompanied Leif Erikson to the colony in Vinland. And as a matter of fact, she gave birth there to the first known child of European descent born in the New World. Hmm. Uh, when the colony was abandoned, she went to Greenland, spent some time there, then went with her new husband back to uh, Iceland, where he was from. Uh, and lived in Iceland for a while. Um, but then when her son was old enough to take on responsibilities, she was a widow by this point, when her son was old enough to take on responsibilities uh, at the, the steading there, she actually traveled to Rome uh, 
She went on a pilgrimage to Rome where she met the Pope and gave the Pope a report on the churches of Greenland and Iceland. Wow. She then returned home, established a monastery near the family steading where she lived out the rest of her life. If the dates we have are correct, she died at age 38. Wow. That is a full life in 38 yeah, yeah. years. Yeah, I'm not sure the dates are correct, but the date, yeah. all the dates I've been able to find indicate that she died in her, in her upper 30s. Wow. So, wow, that's... So, but, but what that tells you is that these Viking colonies and things like that, where Christianity was, they were ultimately, they get in touch with the Pope. They're getting, you know, they're, they're connecting into continental Christianity. So it's as orthodox as anything else in the world at that period. Yeah. Not necessarily Olaf, but, but, <laughs> but the churches that they found are. Yeah. I noticed on the list that you also had some, a couple of queens on here. Uh, There's one, her last name was uh, Becky, Christian Queen of the Khans. Yes. And Sir then Kaktani. Elizabeth of Hungary. Yeah. Let's start with Sir Kaktani. She is one of the more colorful people I ran into. Uh, I actually was in Mongolia in 2013. And um, one of the places uh, that they took us was a museum of the Mongol queens. Hmm. And Sir Kaktani Becky was there and they pointed her out and they said she was one of the most important queens in Mongolia and she was a Christian. Yeah. Wow. And with that, I decided I needed to find out more about her. And this is still, uh, this is central Middle Ages. Yeah. Th she's living in the 1200s. Yeah. And that's interesting because we don't think of Christianity in Asia until much right. later. Right. It turns out that for the first thousand years of church history, there were more Christians outside of the boundaries of the old Roman Empire than there were inside. Hmm. Central Asia had a thriving Christian community. They were Nestorian Christians, um, but they were Christians nonetheless. Um, as a matter of fact, in the 600s, uh, you actually have Nestorian missionaries arriving in China and bringing Christianity there. They converted, these missionaries converted a couple of um, Turkic and Mongol uh, clans, uh, tribes, to Christianity. Uh, one of these was the Karaites. It's a Mongol clan. And Sorkaktani Beki was the daughter of the head of that clan. Now, the Karaites are particularly important because they gave refuge to a young man uh, when his family was uh, basically killed by their enemies, um, a young man by the name of Temujin. Uh, Temujin proved to be a very capable leader, and he started uniting all of their, the various Mongol clans under his authority. And the head of the Karite clan decided that this was rather dangerous. So he actually tried to poison Temujin. It didn't work, and this caused a war in which um, Temujin, with his allies, including the brother of the Khan, of the Karaites, ended up defeating the Karaites. Um, however, uh, Sorkaktani Beki was the daughter um, there, and uh, Temujin wasn't 
really holding a grudge against all the Karaites. And he actually had Sorkoktani marry one of his sons. Temujin then becomes the guy who unites all the Mongol clans, and we know him as the name, under the name Chinggis Khan, which hmm. means Great Khan. So Genghis Khan was actually raised in a Christian clan. <laughs> wow. Um, he himself was a, um, uh, he was a shamanist. Um, he worshipped uh, the sky god uh, Tengri. Uh, but he, and Tengri actually resembles the god of scripture in a lot of ways, except that he doesn't speak. Uh, which is why you need shamans to work with intermediate spirits and all that. But he believed that Tengri was a universal god, but the, that he allowed different people to approach him in their own way. So he was actually very tolerant religiously. Sorkaktani Beki, in any event, her husband ends up being given China, northern China, as his, um, as his uh, region. When he died, Sorkaktani continued to rule China. Um, there's a number of conflicts related to the other uh, rivalries with other cons, things like that. She ends up getting involved in uh, some assassinations and wars internal to the Mongols. Um, but she rules her own territory extremely well, so much so that the, well, the, the Christians, the Buddhists, the Confucianists, and the Muslims in the region all praised her. They all thought that she was absolutely fabulous. Hmm. Unusually for a Mongol, she actually treated the Chinese peasants well. Uh, the Mongols, as herdsmen, didn't really think highly of farmers. But she treated them well, and she um, promoted their interests. Her, she had four sons, all of whom become Khans. The best known of them is Kublai Khan. Uh, who adopted Buddhism as his religion, but was always very tolerant of Christians. Um, but she had two of her sons, including Kublai Khan, that became great Khans. Uh, one of them was the Ilkhan of Persia, uh, the Underkhan of Persia, who was married to a Christian and whose major general, Kitbolga, was a Christian. Um, uh, there, there are all kinds of things that come out of this. Wow. But Sirkatani was so impressive that a Persian diplomat to her court, actually another Christian, said of her that if he could find one other woman like Sirkatani, he would declare that, the, as he put it, the race of women was superior to the race of men. One more like her would convince him of that. That is how impressive this woman was. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, so one more thing. What was her relation to Genghis Khan? She was a daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's just, once again, that's the, that's what makes this book in which you decided to do so great in choosing these characters that we just haven't heard of. And, and so learning about how, uh, what, how deep of a history there is of Christianity in Asia and the connections to Genghis Khan and the others. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible. I'm just, my mind's blown from hearing these stories. I've also got a few from Africa, including some very early ones. So yeah, I noticed, I noticed some of those. Tell us about one. One of the point uh, points of this is that Christianity is truly a multicultural religion. Multiculturalism mm -hmm. has got nothing on the gospel that it, 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 it grows, it flourishes, and it brings blessing wherever it is planted. Hmm. You know, 
So um, we, we see some early examples in Africa. Um, well, let's start with a Syrian by the name of Frumentius. Um, to abbreviate the story, he was on a trading mission that went wrong and he ended up getting enslaved as a young man with his brother. Um, they were given to the king of uh, Izana, um, uh, not, not Izana, excuse me, modern day Ethiopia in any event. Um, I'm blanking out on the name of the kingdom. But they, they ended up becoming tutors to the king's son. When the king died, he dictated that they be set free, but the queen mother asked them to stay to complete their son's education, so they did. Um, they then returned uh, up the Nile to Alexandria, where the brother became a priest, and he approached the patriarch in Alexandria and told him that there was a, um, a golden opportunity to spread the gospel in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. uh, the king said... Uh, that's great, why don't you go do it? Excuse me, the, the patriarch said that. So the patriarch ordained him as a missionary and sent him back to Ethiopia. The boy he tutored was now king, and he quickly embraced Christianity when Frumentius returned and made the kingdom a Christian kingdom. It is the mm. third kingdom to convert to Christianity after uh, Armenia and Rome. So... Um, the kingdom's name was Axum. It's finally come back to me. Um, so they proceed, the two of them proceed to Christianize the kingdom of Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Now, jump ahead a few centuries. Um, the Crusades have happened. They've established uh, the Crusader states, including Jerusalem. And Christians from Ethiopia... Um, regularly make pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Uh, Ethiopia, by the way, was uh, spared initially, at least, Muslim conquest because some of, Mo of Muhammad's first followers went to Ethiopia where they were protected by the Christians there. So Muhammad gave Ethiopia a, uh, a pass in terms of attempts to, to uh, conquer or convert it. Hmm. But they're going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Then in 1187, at the Battle of the Horns of Hattin, um, the Crusader states are, well, particularly Jerusalem is lost. Most of the Crusader states are rolled up. And at that point, the king in Ethiopia was a guy by the name of Lalibela. And Lalibela um, was concerned about the fact that the pilgrimages had shut down. So he decided to set up symbolic pilgrimages within Ethiopia. He renamed a bunch of places in Ethiopia after places in the Holy Land. And he had constructed these rock-hewn churches. Um, these are, well, what they did is they literally carved the church down into the bedrock. Hmm. And so the, these churches weren't built, they were carved and these are these are enormous, incredible feats of of, of engineering. In fact, they, uh, they even set them up so that they had access to artesian wells, so wow. that there'd be water there. They they did the hydraulic engineering. They did everything else, and they carved these incredibly beautiful, intricate churches out of bedrock. Um, wow. The tops of the churches are at ground level, so you have to go down a set of stairs hmm. to actually get into it. 
Um, these rock-hewn churches are an absolute marvel of engineering. They're incredibly beautiful. They're worth looking up. Um, the main ones are at a place that's... Yeah, do, so do some of these still exist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're still there. Uh, and if wow. you look up Lalabella you, uh, on Wikipedia, you'll see pictures of these churches. They're, they're, they're truly remarkable. Yeah. But again, we don't think of Christianity being in Africa until the European missionaries get there in the 1800s. And yet yeah. here is a Christian kingdom that, well, later on, there are other stories about it where they're resisting attempts to conquer it from, uh, from Sudan. But there's a Christian kingdom here that's established at a time when most Europeans were still worshiping rocks. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Back to the, why did they decide to build those churches in that way? Do you know what the, what the reasoning was to, to carve I, them down into the rock instead of erecting a structure? Uh, I don't really know why. I just know that that is what they decided mm. to do. It was probably, yeah. they probably saw it as, uh, on some level more practical, uh, perhaps in terms of, uh, building materials or such. I don't know. Uh, or it may have just been that they saw this as a work of devotion to God to create a, a marvel um, it, to honor mm -hmm. God. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just as a work of creativity and art. Yeah. So moving forward, we've been talking a lot about um, the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages and central Middle Ages. Uh, but moving forward past the Reformation, uh, probably my favorite period to read about is, uh, is American history and especially the founding of America. And so I was excited to see that you had a founding father on there and, uh, in his contribution, you have uh, Benjamin rush in the book. Yeah. So tell us about Benjamin rush, the founding father and how he changed his world. Yeah. Oddly enough, um, America is probably the least represented area, uh, in the book. Uh, South America, too. I didn't do a lot with the Americas. But um, Benjamin Rush uh, was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He was a physician. He mm -hmm. um, uh, was a statesman. He worked, you know, did a lot with the government, helping to establish the Constitution in, in Pennsylvania, getting them to ratify it and all of these sorts of things. Um, he was also, a, a, along with being a physician, he became a professor of medicine. Uh, he's working early on on uh, mental health issues, psychology, things like that, um, well before this had become a, uh, a standard thing. Up to this point, if you were uh, declared mentally ill, you were locked up in an asylum and uh, you know, just sort of kept there. He was trying to find more humane ways of treating mental illness and so on. But he, he made yeah. the list, not because of these things, but because of his involvement in education. Rush is considered the founder of the American public school system. And um, when you look at what he did and how he did it, what he believed was essential, um, it really puts a, um, the contrast between then and today is rather remarkable. Uh, Rush very explicitly believed that you needed to teach the Bible in schools. And the reason you needed to teach the Bible is purely practical. Forget the spiritual dimensions of it for a mo the moment. The Bible teaches mm -hmm. the kinds of ethical and moral behavior 
that are needed for a republic to flourish. Apart from the Bible, you do not have any means of creating the kind of citizens that will make a republic work. Um, from the Middle Ages, it was recognized that the only way a republic survives is if the population is virtuous. Okay, this was recognized, you know, really, what most people don't realize is medieval cities were governed typically as republics. They were governed via representation. And um, mm -hmm. they realized very early on that if the populace that you are governing that has representation are not virtuous, the city falls. It, it, mm -hmm. it lands up in despotism or something like that. So Rush was very, very much concerned with how you promote virtue to make America survive. And he's very explicit that the Bible is about the only way to do it because it teaches the character traits and the virtue that is needed for a, a, a republic to thrive. Wow. Yeah, so that's uh, – there's you, you don't have to be in uh – professional historian to see the difference between that perspective in, on public education and today's perspective on public education. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, he, Rush was one of the first people that I did in that very first talk on uh, Christians Who Changed the World for the Centurion program. Um, mm -hmm. Because one of the things I did is I focused on it. I focused on a couple of topics. One of them was education, and I wanted to get Rush in there so that people you know, would, would understand, would see the difference that this makes. Um, and if, in yeah. fact, Rush is correct, and I'm sure he is on this point, um, if America is going to survive, it's going to survive because of Christian schools and homeschoolers. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other topic we could go down. But we're right. getting close to the end of our time. And so um, let's just finish by talking about so there's way more people that uh, you, you talk about in the book, but tell us what do you hope that the people who read this book or listen to this conversation take away from hearing these stories? Well, we can start with the idea that Christianity spans times, spans continents, um, that it's not a peculiarly specifically Western or white man's religion or anything like that. Um, that Christianity yeah. is is truly global and that, again, wherever it goes, it brings blessings to the people who, to the cultures that, that embrace it. That's the sort of big picture. But along with that, I would mm -hmm. add that Christianity makes an enormous difference in, uh, in our own lives. Um, and that if we live out our worldview faithfully, if we live out the truth of the gospel, the truth of creation, the truth of the image of God, uh, who we are, uh, the truth of the cultural mandate that we are to um, that we are to develop the world under the authority of God. If we do that um, in our own sphere, whatever it may be, then we can make an enormous difference in the world around us and a difference that will echo into eternity. Uh, the hmm. potential for even the smallest things, you know, the, 
the jobs that people don't think of as being terribly important. In God's sight, the small things are important. And if we approach them with excellence, approach them as doing them as service to God, we can make a, a tremendous difference in the world around us. There's an, another guy we have here, um, James Agre, uh, who's the father of African education. Really remarkable guy. Um, Agre really pushed for education, as did Luther, for education not just for boys but for girls. Because he said the surest way for a culture to deteriorate is to educate only the men. If you educate the women too, they will educate the family. Now this is speaking into African culture. Hmm. But educating the mm -hmm. family becomes something that's critical, according to Agri, and I think he's right, for the survival of the culture, for the flourishing of the culture. So even the small things we do in our homes, Agri is right about this, even the things we do in our homes, whether it's the mother or the father that's, that's doing this, is, that's leading and this is irrelevant, even what we do in our homes matters, and it matters in a big way. Yeah. This is what I'm hoping people will see from the book. Yeah, excellent, me too. That's why I wanted to have you on to talk about it, that it might inspire that kind of belief and obedience. Thank you so much for the work you put into writing this book and getting it out there and then for taking the time to share ab about it on the podcast today. Uh, people can follow you by going to your website, uh, Every Square Inch Ministries, um, by connecting with you on Facebook. Um, you also have a, a podcast that you do with a couple other guys called the podcast and, uh, that people can follow you on anything else that you point people to, to be able to keep up with your work. Yeah. I'm also working with reflections ministries, reflections.org. I'm doing a number of, um, most recently there, there are some articles and I do short videos at least one a month. They're teaching about different kinds of things. Uh, lately it's particularly uh, been about history in the church year, um, how to think about the uh, uh, the various holidays we have as Christians. Okay, very cool. So, Reflections, Reflections Ministries, the podcast, uh, Colson Center, you're doing a lot of work in different places, and it's all great. If you're interested in not only the book, but the other things that Glenn is doing, I'll have it all linked in the show notes so you guys go and check it out. Once again, the book is called 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. It is releasing from Canon Press on April 4th, and you can get it from Canon Press uh, as well as Amazon or wherever else you get books. Glenn, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's always fun to talk to you. I appreciate your work, and uh, thank you for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the